Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Rethink Culture, the podcast that shines a spotlight on business leaders who are rethinking workplace culture. My name is Andreas Constantino, and I'm your host. I'm also chairman and founder at Slash Data with a personal passion for rethinking culture. And today I have the pleasure of having with me David Nilsson, who is the CEO of Doxa Talent, that's D-O-X-A. And Doxa is an international business processing outsourcing group who employs 600 people worldwide and interestingly has no office space whatsoever, as David tells me. And David is also a podcast host at The Future is Borderless. He's also a father of two girls. He's a self-proclaimed wine snob and a travel addict. And with that introduction, very much welcome to the show, David. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's start with you. And where did you grow up? What were your influences when you were young? How did you end up being here and caring about culture? Yeah. Well, I was born in California, but lived most of my life in the Seattle area. And up until recently have lived there before relocating to Idaho. I grew up in the Seattle area. My dad was actually a business owner. So he owned one of the largest fresh Christmas tree companies in the world. And so I got a chance to sort of see what the life of an entrepreneur or business owner is like, both the benefits and also the drawbacks. But it was something that I was very interested in from an early age. And in fact, I remember as a teenager, he actually took me on a couple different business trips, one to Orlando, one to Illinois, where I got to actually see him in action. And I just thought it was fascinating work. My first job actually in high school was working at a Subway franchise. So, you know, the sandwich stores. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember just enjoying that sort of ability to provide happiness to people, right? Serving them food. But I quickly got myself, you know, I started working there at 15 and by 17, I was actually managing all three Subway locations this franchisee owned. So at a very early age, I got a chance to manage people, learn how to run a business, think about inventory and revenue. And that was a really interesting experience. After school, I actually got a job in sales and I worked for an organization that had hundreds of people on a sales floor and I was just one of them. And funny enough, you know, I, I guess at the time I didn't draw the connection, but there was two things that I learned from that. One is I didn't ever want to work for somebody else. I didn't like being just a number inside of an organization. And I felt like the way that I would be able to change that is by actually being a leader. The second thing is I also learned that I'm really good with people and that I really care about, you know, the people that I work with. And so I think the early experiences there working in a company that taught me how not to run a business definitely did influence how we built ours from there. And what led you to take an interest in, in culture? Was it natural for you? Was it like an interest you developed organically or was it a sudden realization that one day I have to put people first? Well, you know, I think, so I'm a big fan of personal assessments. It's something that we actually use to help hire and then also train our, our team. And one of the things that you'll see in any personality assessment I've ever taken is that people is my number one driver. So when it comes to connection, some people like to win, some people like to connect, others like to finish or achieve. I am definitely that person who likes to connect. So naturally for me, it's really important to have that, you know, feeling that we're on the same team and that we care about each other and we're driving towards the same goal. So for me, I think that was natural. But, you know, the one thing that I, I started to realize early on in my business career is that we spend more time at an office or working in a business than we do with our family. So if you're going to make that trade-off, you better 
believe in what you do, like the work that you're doing, and also really appreciate the people you work with. Otherwise, what's the point? There's another opportunity. And so for me, I always thought, if I'm going to ask these team members to come spend more time with our business and with me in the company than with their family, then we, it better be a valuable experience for them. And so culture has been sort of the hallmark of both businesses that I've started because we knew that was so important to the people that we work with. So talking about people, your business is all about people. And however, much has changed in the last two or three years. So, you know, initially we went all remote. Now we're partly remote, part hybrid, part back in the office. Like, I'm sure you have an opinion about how things have changed and, and what is the new norm, really? Well, yeah, good question. Uh, new norm? I don't know. I think we're all still figuring that out. But I think there's a couple things that I've seen that are really challenging business owners today and challenging culture today. The first one, which you sort of alluded to, is the remote work, right? You know, prior to COVID, so many people were already having this conversation. Should I be a flexible employer? Should I be a hybrid environment? COVID sort of forced that decision for people, right? They sort of, we all had to leave our offices and spend time trying to figure out how to work in a remote environment. And many of us figured out we could. Interestingly enough, I don't think that the, the remote environment challenged us from a productivity standpoint, but I do think it challenged us from a cultural standpoint. And so today I look at like entrepreneurs, the big struggle that we have is that, you know, 50% of, of employers want people to come back to the workforce for a five-day work week. And that's because they have not figured out how to build culture, how to think about that in a remote world. And yet, if you look at a lot of the surveys online, in fact, I just ran one on my LinkedIn profile, only 9% of people actually want to come back to an office. The rest of them, if given the opportunity to be remote or hybrid, will take it. So there's this huge disconnect between what the entrepreneurs feel like they're capable of doing and what the, the new workforce wants. And I, I personally have a strong opinion. You said this in a, a minute ago. We've got approximately 600 people now across the globe in three different continents, and we don't have any office space whatsoever. And when I talk about this topic, I always tell people, I'm like, I think they have to choose, do they want to be in an office or remote? If you look at some of the data that's been published, it's actually the people that are in the middle that have chosen that they're not going to do either be in the office or remote. And they try to be a hybrid organization where the biggest struggles remain. So I'll give you one example and then I promise I'll, I'll stop with my monologue. But I remember the first time, this is prior to COVID, we had sort of become a hybrid organization. We, we used to be fully centralized in one office and we had this great culture. People described it as a family environment and it was great. The moment we went to hybrid, where you had some people that were remote, but most people in an office, all of a sudden we had two classes of employees. Those that were part of the culture, those that were connected to what was happening, those who could have water cooler talk and could learn by sitting side saddle with one of their peers. And then those who were just in a virtual environment, sort of an afterthought within the organization. And I happened to be traveling one time and I remember I called in for a leadership team meeting and here's all my team sitting around the boardroom table, having a conversation and I'm just stalking them in cyberspace from over here. And I felt completely disconnected from the team. I didn't feel part of the conversation. And I remembered at that point, like, we can't do this anymore. Either everyone is in an office or everyone is remote. We can't sit in between. And I think too many people today are, you know, if you're going to be in the office, you can be best in class at that. If you're going to be remote, you're going to be best in class in that, or you can be. If you're going to be hybrid, you're trying to do both simultaneously. It's hard to be best in class in either. Very interesting. In, in our case, we were a 
remote first company. Mm -hmm. And during COVID, like after the lockdown, people didn't really come back to the office. We said, you know, can, you can come if you like, or you can continue working from home. And most chose to continue working from home. So yeah. we needed to save some costs. We closed the office. Anyway, most people weren't showing up. So we became remote only by kind of popular choice. Yep. And I have also experienced what you mentioned, both in, you know, the entrepreneurs organization we're both members of, but also at work, where it's really a compromise and under very specific conditions can you get it to work. That hybrid working, you know, some people in the office, some people online will have a productive meeting. So, however, having said that, there are so many businesses that don't believe remote only will work. And so, like many, like I, I was telling you earlier, many will, will, will cite culture as a reason of keeping people coming back to the office. And you have to be there, otherwise we can't preserve the culture. Can you preserve the culture with a 600 remote only organization? I believe you certainly can. Here's what I would say. I think it depends on how you define culture. Now, if I look at my business in 2003, 2004, when we were all in one office, the way we thought about building culture was very different, right? It was about fun events and team lunches. Mm -hmm. And it was really more around this concept of fun. And that was sort of the idea of culture. It was about personal connection. Today, though, if I look, I mean, look, we're sitting in the middle of what, you know, everyone calls the great resignation, right? And what you're seeing is this massive turnover in corporate America. And the reasons why people are leaving is one, inadequate compensation. So no surprise, right? And that's, that's a financial decision. The second is a lack of career development. And the third is uncaring leaders. In nowhere in there does it say fun. In fact, <laughs> we recently surveyed our team and asked them, like, what are the things that they valued the most? Team meetings and fun events were the second to last of this whole list that we gave them. For them, it was about actually learning and growing. They want to increase their impact and they also want to increase their income. Uh, and those things need to be correlated. So I think, you know, when you're in an office, yes, you can create more of that family environment, that fun environment and have more activities. But what we've decided to do in a remote world is focus on the individual and making sure that their, their needs are being met and then trying to catalyze relationships where we can. So a couple of quick examples. We have a full learning and development effort inside of our organization where, you know, we've basically taken best practices from lots of groups, including Corn Ferry is one that um, I particularly like. And we've said, hey, look, here are our values. And this is how these values manifest themselves in an organization. And here's the segments that we need to train on related to those. So, for example, one of our values is inclusion, right? And with inclusion, we have to learn to value each other's differences. And so the trainings are how to communicate effectively with people from different cultures and then situational adaptability. Uh, and we've done this for each of our values. But we then have also invested in team building events on a quarterly basis. And we can use, there's services out there where you can, everyone can choose their own meal and you can send them a, a lunch at home. And so we can have lunch together, but do it over a virtual environment. And then twice a year, we've chosen to get together in person. So we actually host a conference for our clients to come and actually be part of our holiday party and celebrate with our people. And then we've turned it into a one-day learning event and then a give back where we have a chance to sort of do something to lift up the community that we're celebrating inside of. So, so we've done a lot there, but I, I believe, you know, if you were to summarize uh, what I just said, 
in a remote world, we just have to shift the way we think about culture from being fun to keeping a connection, but also developing those individuals. It reminds me of a poster I have in the kitchen, which is something along the lines of fun is not a destination, it's a path. Yeah. So it's not something you do. It's, it's, it's all the little things that you do as part of everyday life. Yeah. What, was there something that you changed in the culture to cope with COVID or during the COVID period? Were you on a fully remote before COVID as well? No, we weren't. So, um, well, I shouldn't say that. The business uh, that I started in 2003, Guidant Financial, was a hybrid at that point. And we were actually really struggling with how to make this work. And when COVID happened, it thrust everyone into a remote environment. And instantly, all the challenges that we were having sort of went away. I mean, I talked about this earlier. When you're the remote person, communication's hard, connection is hard, but everyone got forced onto the same playing field, communicating the same way, having the same experience. We had to up-level our training and onboarding because we couldn't do it just by, you know, sit here and watch this person. We actually had to do some formal training. So instantly the challenges we had in the hybrid environment sort of took care of themselves. So we never went back to an office and we've decided not to go back to an office at all. Now, my other business, Doxa Talent, we actually started as a remote business. And so, you know, we had a little bit of an advantage because as we were building the business, everything we did, we thought about in a remote world. So yeah, that's, that is, that's sort of how that happened. But COVID forced, forced our hand in this one case, and it just further committed us to leaning into all remote. What are some of the things you're doing because you're fully remote to Doxa? So how do you make up for lack of like physical proximity how do you get people to know each other how do you get people to have water cooler conversations how do you mm -hmm. get people to celebrate birthdays when they're not in the same room you know how do you make up for that lack of human connection in the physical space yeah so i'll think about it in a couple different buckets right one is in hiring how do we do this with hiring so the first way is that uh, when people join, you know, typically if you had somebody in your office join, you just walk them around and introduce them to a bunch of people. We just set up meet and greets instead where everybody jumps onto a Zoom call for 30 minutes with a cup of coffee and have a chance to sort of get to know each other. I actually meet with all the new team members that are joining our organization on a monthly call. We certainly, like every organization, have team meetings and regular one-on-ones. And it's really important that people still feel connected to their team. And so actually, I talked to you about like what are the things that people valued the most. One of the top was the team meetings because that's the place where they get to know people, where they feel connected to the, the organization. The other is that as they've now been onboarded, I send out a monthly email to the group to let them know like, hey, what's happening in the organization? Where have we performed well? Where are we struggling? What should you expect? Here are our new people. We do a monthly call for the entire company, sort of reviewing some of the same things and then talking about some things that are changing and give them a chance to ask questions and get involved. In terms of birthdays, you asked that a minute ago. We we certainly celebrate birthdays, but we can't do it in person as a group. And so that's typically done at the team level, but we still send out gifts for people when they've, you know, birthdays and anniversaries and un unique milestones. Uh, we just have to celebrate them very differently. And then we use, a lot of people use Slack and other technology. We use Teams because we have, you know, Microsoft, we've, Microsoft Teams, we've built a channel just for giving cheers. And so we encourage people to give cheers or and that's just really a catching people doing things right and creating an environment of 
gratitude and feedback uh, for the organization. And then we celebrate those cheers in some of the things I talked about, the all company calls and my emails, we pull those out and sort of, you know, advocate those in front of the group. So we've done some team buildings where we've broken people up into groups that they generally wouldn't, or, you know, wouldn't have a chance to interact with to make sure that they continue to feel connected. But I will say we're still learning. I mean, we, you know, we've got a large team right now and it's growing really quickly, but there are still pieces of this that we're still sort of fumbling our way through. So for example, we are starting to think about, can we hire people in pockets rather than being just anyone anywhere? Could we hire people more strategically in pockets where maybe quarterly they could get together for a lunch or a coffee, mm. right? And where there there is some of that human connection because I think mm. in a remote world, it works for people who have their own established network. Maybe they go to church. I, I have a pretty large group of friends that I interact with. So I don't need the social interaction in the workplace, but I'm also in my 40s. When I was 20, I would have needed more of that. And so as we think about, you know, who we're hiring and what they need in their lives, I think we are going to have to foster a little bit more of that human connection, even though we will be a remote organization. And I think you can have more human connection remote than some companies have in the office with a, you know, a bad culture or a sour culture. And talking about birthdays, something which to us wasn't a an, an unexpected surprise, a pleasant surprise was we started celebrating birthdays post-COVID. It just happened. And, you know, we thought, why don't we wish that person happy birthday over a Zoom call? And there were like 20 windows chanting asynchronously in a, you know, complete cacophony. And it was so funny. And yeah. ever since, it's just fun to hear everyone's voices just being themselves without trying to synchronize and just wishing well someone. Yeah. And uh, again, talking about birthdays, uh, we also have a policy where the person can take off the day of their birthday if it's a work day. And so we wish that person on Slack because not around, we wish them happy birthday and the next day they come, you know, they come back on Slack and say, thank you guys for for the wishes. Yep. So I just think, you know, remote or not remote, there are just so many opportunities. And I think we are too narrow-minded when we say that remote doesn't really foster culture or, or diffuses or challenges culture. Absolutely. Listen, my guess is, and I'll, I'll use just my example. So we have a significant number of people in the Philippines. And in the Philippines, the average person commutes on public transportation about three and a half hours a day. Wow. So if you think about that, that is nearly 20 days of their life every single year that is invested in just being on a bus. So by being remote, we've given them 20 full days back with their families. That is a huge, huge benefit. So would people love to be there to cut a birthday cake in person and hear everyone singing to them live? Yes. But would they rather have those 20 days back and maybe do it over Zoom? My guess is for most people, the answer is yes. But, you know, it also depends on the people that you're hiring. So, you know, one of the things that I found really fascinating out of COVID is that McKinsey's done a lot of work trying to help analyze, like, what has happened in the workplace? And what's what we found is that instead of having this sort of like one worker profile that we were all recruiting for, there are now four that we have to be aware of. The traditionalist is what they called the first one. And that is actually someone who wants work-life balance, going to generally sign up with your company and stay for five to 10 years. Like that's, and everybody, that's who we wanted before, right? 
The largest segment of people that responded actually were the do-it-yourselfers, and they're the ones who want radical flexibility. They want to be able to move anywhere in the world. They want to work four days a week for 10 hours a day. They want to work anywhere in the world and actually have you like abolish location-based pay. They want unlimited PTO, like that person. That's the number one person that responded to this work study of over 10,000 people. And then you have the caretakers, and I've seen a lot of this. In fact, the caretaker is the individual who wants really great flexibility throughout the day. And they also need to be paid well for their work. Uh, there's someone who's taking care of children or an, uh, you know, someone in the home. And that's actually someone that we see often in our workplace. And so being flexible is something that we have to just continually do. Uh, and then you have the idealist, which is the youngest generation, but a lot of uh, the people obviously are, are hiring today. These are people who care the most about working for a company with a strong purpose and also mm. the fact that there will be career advancement opportunities. And so we can't just recruit for the same person as an organization. We have to be intentional about who is it that we're actually bringing into our work, our workforce. For us, we made a strategic decision. We want the caretakers and the idealists. You know, the radical flexibility, although we can provide it, may not cater well to our clients. The traditionalist is great, but actually we really wanted people who who valued purpose because I always say that we're a purpose with a business, not a business with a purpose. Our whole thing is we want to lift up global communities by creating meaningful work. And so we want people who really believe what we believe, and that's both clients and people. And then the second is career advancements. I feel like one of the greatest ways that we can lift up communities is not just by giving them a job or paying them well, but actually helping them to grow as an individual and as a professional so that they can continue to have a greater impact in the communities they work in. So we strategically chose those two profiles, but I think every organization, if they're not thinking about it now, will soon be forced to think about who do I want to recruit in and what culture are we going to nurture that uh, will speak to that audience. And so lots of things crop to mind after that. So first question is, how do you screen I assume you do, for those two personas. Yeah. So there's two ways uh, that we do it. So one is through a panel interview. We've created a, you know, a set of questions that we think help unearth whether or not somebody would sit in these. And it, you know, again, we may get it wrong from time to time, but for the most part, I think it's pretty close. The second thing that we actually use is something called culture index. Uh, this is an assessment that we use. There's lots of them out there. Some people like DISC or Predictive Index or Myers-Bridge. I mean, there's lots of them. We chose culture index. But that gives us a little bit of a sense for their natural wiring and the things that are going to drive them. So for example, you know, we'll look at their resume. That helps us understand would they potentially have the skills to do this job. We do the panel interview that helps us understand is this the profile and the types of skills that we want to bring into the organization. And we use the assessment to help us understand are they going to succeed in the environment that we have for the role that we want them in? So for example, if somebody is extremely socially driven, like they need that connection 24 seven and they've never worked in a remote environment and want to continue, we're hesitant to bring that person into a remote environment. If somebody is gonna be working in an accounting role, but they move wildly fast and they have low attention to detail, probably not the person I want doing my accounting, right? So we look at both the role and also their natural wiring to say, is this person going to fit within our business in this type of role? And, um, and that's been really effective for us to sort of look at all three of those, the skills, their natural wiring, and then our culture as a way to determine, do we have the right fit? Was there a part of your culture that you looked to someone else to borrow or steal from? Is there a company that you admire and you used as a role model as you built your culture? 
Well, <laughs> so the answer is yes. I don't know if I've had many unique thoughts in my lifetime. Uh, most of the things that I do, I've learned somewhere, right? Or I've picked up from someone and modified slightly. To be candid, there's no company that we aspire to be. There's not one company that I've been like, oh, they've figured it out. But I've just through osmosis learned lots of great things that are uh, lots of different people are doing around the world. And I've just tried to integrate those in a way that I think works within our culture. So I wish I could give you one. I remember early on, Zappos was really interesting to me. The culture that they had created in terms of pushing authority and autonomy into the organization, sort of leveling out the leadership. I thought they did some really unique and creative things. Now, did they all work out perfectly? No, but not everything I've done worked, has worked out perfectly. I think you just sort of continue to put one foot forward. And, and I think if people... Actually, I'll make a comment. A lot of entrepreneurs that I've spoken with often believe that they have to have it all figured out before they introduce it to their team. And I've just always believed that if I lead with authenticity and I say when we really know what's going on and when we're really testing something, people give us a lot of grace. And you know, when things work out, it's really exciting. When they don't, then we cut it fast and we move on and we learn again. So I think culture is not just about fun and not just about development, but also about sort of training your team to come along with you in the way that you want to lead the business. You reminded me of something I heard yesterday. We had an accelerator learning day at the Entrepreneurs' Organization. Okay. And the, the instructor who was new, so he was teaching us for the first time, um, he was from Cape Town. He was coming to Athens and he was saying, I would like your permission to make mistakes because I have never delivered to this audience before. And I just love that. You know, it's a statement of vulnerability and personal acceptance that leaves no choice but to accept and say we're all human. Yeah. And I want to go to something we discussed just before starting the, the recording. And to me, vulnerability relates to authenticity and to servant leadership. And you mentioned something which, I, which really resonated with me, which is how can we lead by inspiration and not by authority. I'm not quoting your words, I'm paraphrasing, but can you expand on what it means to lead by inspiring others and not by authority? And how can you do that? Well, yeah, so so lots of thoughts come to mind there. So I, th I think what I was sharing is that I appreciate having a chance to spend time leading in other organizations where I don't have positional authority because it forces me to think about how do I lead by influence, right? Like how do I how do I help bring people along without you know, I'm the boss, so I get to just do this. And it, it actually has really changed the way that I lead in general. Yeah, I think early on in my career, I was a little bit more an authoritarian than I was a collaborative leader. And what I've found is that if you communicate with people, if you act with transparency and authenticity, and, and they believe that you are looking out for their interests along the way, there's a lot that they will do. In our business, we you know, we believe in putting people first. In fact, you know, we have our values like everybody does. But we actually have principles as well. And these are the things that we believe are the principles for how we operate the business. And number one is putting people first. That's easy to say, but not always easy to do. And I'll give you an example of where that we were really tested with this. So COVID 2020 hits the US. And in fact, I lived in Kirkland, Washington. And Kirkland, Washington is where the first case was recorded uh, in the United States. And I remember looking at my business partner a week or two prior to that and saying, and man, if COVID is in China, it's going to make its way to Seattle because we are one of the main ways that people get from the mainland, China, into the United States. 
So the first case hit, we had already had a plan in place. And we had to think about at that time, we knew that this was going to cause a major issue because we had seen what was happening in Wuhan and other places in the world. And so we had to make a decision. Do we want to preserve the finances of the business and the income of some people, or do we want to preserve jobs? And we made a strategic decision at that point to preserve jobs, not income. And so what ended up happening, because we've served small businesses, we had no idea how this was going to impact us, but we knew it could be catastrophic. So as founders, we cut our comp immediately, zero, down to zero. We asked our leadership team to take a large pay cut because they were paid the most. We felt like they needed to give back the most. And anybody who under a certain threshold, you know, there were some wage cuts that we put in place immediately, but under a certain threshold, we said they can't afford to take a pay cut. Like it just can't happen. And so we sort of adjusted our finances with those making the most to give the most back so that we could preserve jobs, not do layoffs and withstand the COVID turmoil. Now, thankfully, things worked out a lot better than expected. And as you probably know, in the U.S., you know, many businesses did very well and the government did a great job of providing some stimulus. So within a few months, we were able to reverse all of that and we paid them back the wages that we had asked them to give. But it was a really important moment for us to say, like, are we really putting our people first? Or are we putting our income, our livelihood first? And we were very clear with the team what was happening, what we were asking of every single person. And uh, I think it earned a lot of, I think it demonstrated for them that we were actually living our values and our principles. And so I think if leaders continue to, not just in the good times, but in the hard times, act in a way that's consistent with the culture, the values, the beliefs, I think it's easier to lead at that point. Do you have room to improve your culture? Is there a, an area of work where you yeah. are resolutely clear that this is something you need to improve? For sure. Um, I, I would say that we are not done in any aspect of our culture, but you know, I made a comment a minute ago. There is this component of human connection, right? We know that the reason people leave companies is because they feel like they have an uncaring or ineffective leader. But the number one reason why people stay is because they feel like they have a best friend. So that's really hard in a remote environment. That is really hard to foster. So good news is some of that is shifting towards this. Do I have a path to growth and career opportunity and advancement? But there still needs to be that human connection that we talked about, which is why we're looking strategically. Can we hire in pockets where we still can be a remote organization, but allow people to foster some personal connections? It's why we're also doing two events a year live. Like I go back to the Philippines and Vietnam and now Kazakhstan. I go back to these places twice a year so that we can continue to have a personal connection with them. I literally just got back a week ago from Vietnam where I went there just for a day to spend some time with the team, to take them to dinner and break bread and, and just make sure that they know that we care about them as people, not just as workers. So I, the other place that I'd say that we have opportunity to grow is how we train in the onboarding process. You know, most companies, when you join an organization, have very ineffective training programs. And so what they do is they'll say, You know, Andreas, you're now uh, starting with us as a salesperson. I'm gonna have you sit next to this salesperson, David, for the next two weeks and just watch and learn and listen, ask questions. And by osmosis, you're gonna pick it all up and hopefully be great. In a remote environment, you can't be that sloppy. You have to be very, very coordinated. You're gonna meet with this person at this time. This is what they're gonna cover. This is the content and curriculum. Here's how we're gonna reinforce that later. And so while we do a great job, I think there's a lot of room for improvement. We've got the general stuff worked out well, but when we bring on an accountant, they need different onboarding and a software engineer needs different onboarding and a sales development rep needs different onboarding. And so those are the things that right now we're starting to work, work through and continue to evolve. 
Is there something unique to your culture that you're particularly proud of and that you would be proud if someone stole from you? Something that makes Doxa unique in your mind? Mm. Well, yes. So we're an international PEO, really. So we employ people and provide them an opportunity to work with our clients uh, around the world. Once a year, we throw what's called DoxaCon. So it's like a conference, right? DoxaCon. DoxaCon happens the first week of December. We invite all of our clients to fly in and we curate basically a mini university. You're a member of EO, you know what a university looks like, right? We start with a huge party and that's to celebrate the previous year, right? Like all the great work that we did together. And it gives our clients a chance to come in and create that human connection, that personal celebration with the team that supports the work that they do. And it was a rock star party. In fact, it was a rock star themed party. Um, I did my keynote in a wig looking like Slash from Guns N' Roses. Um, <laughs> it was one of the more unique ones. The next day though, we did that learning environment and we had, I think, eight different speakers that flew in from around the world. And we talked about everything from building culture to how to create a content strategy in the new year, the new personas that we just talked about. We sort of did an in-depth dive and it was really to help invest in the business owners, but we also invite VIPs to participate in that. The VIPs are our team members. And then the next day we did a community event where we went out to one of the most impoverished areas of the Philippines and we were able to feed 10,000 people in the course of three hours. And wow. so, you know, living our value of lifting up communities through education, through uh, meaningful work, we try to sort of put that into one big event in a way that um, catalyzes relationships. So the things that we talked about, I think that was one of the most amazing cultural events I've ever been a part of because bringing people from all around the world into this one sort of pressure cooker of an experience, uh, and it was just absolutely outstanding. So if I were to hear someday that somebody ripped that off, because they heard about it on this podcast, I'd be thrilled to hear that. And talking about clients who joined your Rockstar event, how do they experience your culture? Do you think there's this osmosis effect? Do For sure. you think that they pick up some signals about what the culture is like? What do they tell you? So, okay, uh, a minute ago I told you I like to refer to our business as a purpose with a business, right? So our purpose is to lift up global communities by creating meaningful work. When Doxicon's first Doxicon that we threw... We had actually a third of our clients flew in. So, I mean, we had a large number of people actually pay to come to the Philippines and celebrate with us. And I remember somebody actually made that comment to me after meeting the team and seeing like some of these people had bought homes, uh, had their first car, started a family as a result of coming to work with us and being paid well and invested in and treated like a human being. It was really cool because one of our clients actually said that to me. So I've repeated that now because it just meant so much to me. We want to have a big impact on the world and we believe we are, but it wasn't until an outside party, one of our clients came in and said, oh my God, you guys are not a business. You're a purpose with a business. And um, wow. that so really that, resonated. The client me. actually said that? hundred percent. That's where I took wow. it from. Like, I'd Again, wow. I told you I have no unique thoughts. Yeah, This was actually something a Love client that. said after experiencing our culture, said, man, you guys are a purpose with a business. And that, that meant a lot and it's resonated for me. And so wrapping up, David, we talked a lot about culture. We didn't talk about the old versus the new ways of culture. What do you think we as leaders need to rethink about culture? Great question. So there's two things that immediately came to mind. One is we as leaders are never done. Like there's no such thing as set it and forget it, right? Culture is a constant uh, evolution. But one thing that we didn't get to, but actually is, I think is really important, is that culture is no longer one size fits all. 
culture needs to be something that can be personalized. Um, we talked about the different personas that we're inviting into our organization. Some of the things that we do, some of the experiences we curate are going to really speak to them. Others are not. And so we've decided, at least what we've developed is there are some things about our culture that are required. Like we want people to come to the all company meeting so that they feel connected to what's happening in the business and that they're getting the communication um, that allows them to understand that. But there are other things like a, a, a lunch and learn. That's up to them to decide whether they want to be a part of, right? And so we've developed a culture where they can sort of pick the things that are most important to them, still knowing that there are some that are required. And I think that long-term, that is going to be a key to success for business leaders. They stop thinking about culture being just one way of everyone experiencing it, allowing it to be a more personalized experience. David Nelson, thank you for your humility, your leadership, your insights, and giving us some amazing culture ideas to steal from. And hopefully many of us will. I appreciate being here. This was a fantastic conversation. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you.